Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Why don't some patients get better? In my psychiatry residency, we were told that if patients didn't improve, you might have the wrong diagnosis, or there could be a comorbid medical problem, or possibly substance abuse, or the patient isn't following the treatment plan, or the patient has a self-destructive personality disorder, such as borderline personality disorder. But back in the early aughts, not that long ago really, what we didn't discuss in my training was the role of early childhood trauma and neglect in our treatment failures. It's relatively easy to assess for what has happened to someone. It's a much more difficult process to assess what was missing. Because it turns out that some of the most important questions in a psychiatric eval involve those first few years of life, when verbal narrative memories are hazy at best. And these are questions like, were you left alone for extended periods of time as a baby? Were you cared for and loved as an infant and as a young child? Were you wanted? What did your first three or four years look like? How were you soothed? Did you feel safe? In today's story, we hear Randy describe how he initially found sobriety, community, and healing in Alcoholics Anonymous. But as the years of sobriety ticked by, he increasingly realized that the treatment, which was apparently working for all his other AA friends, was not working for him. His deepest detachment circuits seemed to be faulty. He couldn't connect and trust and love the way that others seemingly could. And he became increasingly lonely and isolated, hopeless. It took medicine work with ayahuasca and then with psilocybin for him to begin to uncover how the death of his little brother and the subsequent family numbing and shutdown led to his hidden emotional neglect and eventual descent into addiction. So somewhere in the neighborhood is 12 hospitalizations later. I'm 28 years old and I've reached the end of my rope. You know, I'm laying on my apartment floor. I've been in treatment, you know, a dozen times. and Nothing's working. And so I go back to AA. And, uh, you know, I found the sponsor that was with me for 14 years. That, and, and I'll say this at the outright, AA saved my life. I was really doomed to an alcoholic death at that point. There was nothing anybody could do for me anymore. You know, so I met my sponsor and... I just did whatever those guys told me to do. And it was kind of weird because, you know, they, they have these mantras. Well, if you want what we have, you're going to do what we do. And I'm kind of a surface looking guy and they're dressed in overalls and drive shitty cars. And it's like, I don't want, I don't want I'm not going to get any girlfriends doing this shit, you know? And, uh, but those guys would take me at the time. It was up to, uh, it was not a Denny's, it was a Sambo's restaurant back then, and vinyl seats with duct tape on them and that kind of thing. And they would sit there with me until 2 o'clock in the morning to keep me calm. I had to have a babysitter for the first six months. And uh, I couldn't be alone. And I was terrified. As long as I was in an AA meeting, I felt 100% safe. But the second I was out of that cocoon, I felt like I was going to drink. And so I stuck with people, I mean, heartily for, for six months at least. And I went to two to three meetings a day for almost 10 years. And that was good for me. I needed that. I needed a spontaneous amputation from the way I was thinking and the people I was around. And I needed an indoctrination, you know, and call it a cult. I needed all that stuff. And it, it, it benefited me. You need a connection. 
I needed people, man. Yeah, because think you lose your brother as a little boy, and then you essentially lose your parents because they're just in a numb grief shutdown. Mm-hmm. And then you find your connection with alcohol, and but here finally getting clean, you're yeah, you're connecting with a, a powerful group of charismatic men. Yes, probably mostly men. Who they are were. Saying, yeah, we, you know, stick with us, and we can save your life. And they. They did say that, and they didn't lie to me, and they didn't abandon me when I did stupid shit, and uh, they taught me how to fix the problems that I created. They gave me, you know, you asked in in one of those things, you know, what did it give me? And, uh, you know, it gave me an ethical and moral framework that I could rattle my emotions and my problems down through and move forward without further damaging myself and the world around me. It helped me to grow up. You know, my sponsor on an intimate level taught me how to be a son to my father and a brother to my brother and a son to my mother and a friend to friends. None of that, everything had some kind of a, what do you call that? Not interaction, but uh transactional value Mm -hmm. you know if i give you this i better get that and he told me that all that's got to come to an end you know you have to give without expectation yeah that's the thing when you're drinking heavily through your adolescent early adult years you're losing all that time where normally you would learn how to how to be how to be a friend or a boyfriend or as you said a son a brother you just it's like emotional, interpersonal development, psychological development just comes to a halt. When I look, understanding, and you know, I've been in the addiction field now for 20 plus years, and you know what I do, and I love this stuff, and studied brain neurobiology deeply with regard to substance abuse. And when I look at the, the onslaught of chemicals to that prefrontal cortex and the rest of my brain, at 11 years old until you're 28, the development is severely inhibited. And so when I sobered up, uh, it was like the night of the living dead. This shit was coming out of me, and I had no clue what to do with emotions or any of that stuff. I mean, it was scary. And so, you know, it's true what they say. I, you know, I, I'm 28 years old. I'm in an adult world, and I've got the prideful adolescent mentality of a 14-year-old. And, you know, I was capable of getting into a lot of trouble because I've got an adult body and I'm operating in an adult world with a kid's mind. Mm -hmm. And I did. I ran into a lot of, uh, you know, just getting into, I can't even call them relationships. They were collisions. So there was a lot of healing. I mean, it sounds like you really kind of grew up in AA. You, you know, you moved from being a 14-year-old to an adult and learned to connect and just learned how to live. And then also, I think, as we often see, like life is more complicated than that. As you moved along in AA, you, you began to feel, see, sense in yourself that there was a whole other depth of of pain, of darkness that 
needed to be addressed that was not being addressed. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't know what it was. I just knew there were there were holes that I fell into sometimes and didn't know why, and I could not operate. And they were generally around very intimate relationships, relationships where I had deep feelings for people. And my feelings, because they were so unregulated and I had so little experience keeping them in, in check and just recognizing them for what they are, I acted on every emotion that I had. So I was very busy. I would have feelings for somebody, and then immediately I would fall into this state of darkness and fear and uh, similar to what I felt. Now I know this. Similar to what I felt when I was in that living room looking at everybody's knees going, somebody fucking help me. Mm-hmm. you know. And I couldn't get out of it. And so the obvious you know, solution to that is get whatever person is out there that I'm the cause of the problem to come soothe me somehow, which strangles a relationship to death in no time. And that happened over and over. I mean, dozens, dozens of times. And so then I started to go into therapy and they start chipping away at my childhood and all of the mantras from AA were, don't worry about that stuff. That's all in your past. You've inventoried that. You've made your amends. You've moved on. But I had these areas of deep inhibition in a social sense that I couldn't move forward on. And, and I wanted to, and I was clueless about how to do that. You're realizing, okay, my intimate relationships are broken. There's something maybe broken about me or my, mm-hmm. my picker, or I've got to figure out how I can connect in an intimate way with people. Yeah, so the, the, the picker, right? In AA, it's, uh, yeah, my picker's broke. And everybody laughs about it, you know, but you look at the deep meaning behind that. There's a reason I'm picking the people that I'm picking. You know, I'm attracted to broken people that have the same vulnerabilities that I do. Um, so I'm 15 years sober, moving into 20 years of sobriety. And, you know, it started to feel... This is a term I came across recently. It felt like the vessel was too small, but I didn't know that it's what it was. I was mad at AA, and I didn't need to be mad at AA, but I started to recognize a lot of hypocrisy. I started to see a lot of idol worship that has always been there. You know, I, I mean, I got real good at AA. You know, I'm a charismatic guy, and I've got a voice, and I've got verbiage, and I can whip a room, a room into an emotional frenzy. And I got good at that. And suddenly it felt very uncomfortable. It felt very disingenuous, you know, that I'm just repeating these mantras so I can be popular to a certain degree inside this small uh, group of admittedly deranged individuals. <laughs> and, and I want to be the best one. <laughs> I want to be good at AA. And, uh, but I, and I, I don't want to use the term I saw to see, started to see AA for what it was, because AA is a beautiful thing. It saved my life. You know, what occurs in there is transformative for so many people. But in, so I start to look at other areas. I start to look at therapy. I start to explore Buddhism and meditation. And by this time, I'm into, you know, bike racing and competition. And I've got a lot of things going on that are starting to take some of my time my world is getting bigger. I'm getting a little bit better at it. And uh, then I start getting spooked because the mantra is, if you get too far from the herd, you're going to die. Remember, you've got to wake up every morning and look yourself in the mirror and then say, without God's help, you're a dead man, that you're going to die today if you don't admit you're sick. You're sick every day. And that started to feel awful to me because I I don't want to be sick. And I don't need to remind myself I'm sick every day. I've been doing that for 40 fucking years. I don't want to do that anymore. 
you know, through a long chain of circumstances, I, I got fortunate enough to move back to Colorado. By this time, I had been researching um, to a degree psilocybin and seen some of the trials in emergency rooms and some of the effects that it had on suicidality and things like that. And I thought, that's really interesting. But I can't think about that because if I take a substance, then I'm not sober and I'll lose everything that I have and I'll die. So I was scared all the time there too. I'm not fitting in over here and I can't go over there because if I need to go back here, well, I've already been over there and I've used and, and so I started to lose my place in the world and, uh, I can't say lose my identity, but, uh, you know, lose your tribe. I lose my tribe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the reasons I'm here. I'm ready to lose that tribe to a degree. I mean, I'm coming out. And I think I told you at roughly um, one of the most valuable things I got from sobriety was sleep. I had respite. I had escape from the world. And if I could sleep, then I can survive anything. And I started to have insomnia again at about 10 years sober. And you know what? Scarily enough, I took a risk and I took a hit off of a pipe and it put me to sleep. And that's all I've ever done since. I've never used it in any other way. I like being sober. I like being straight. I don't I don't want to be altered. And I've, I've had psychiatrists and everybody say, well, here, take Ativan, take Xanax and things like that. And I've tried. And it does what it does for a short period of time. But the rebound anxiety that I feel from that stuff is crushing. And so it's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. I had to find another. Well, I didn't have to find another way. I did. But immediate shame onset, right? Now I'm living a double life again. I've got this thing going on down here. And the tribe would say you're not sober. So for... 15 years I've been I've had a degree of shame about that I'll I'll give you this experience when I'd moved to Colorado and met a couple people a buddy of mine that I'd met here that is uh, a UC student in the neurobiology of addiction I thought well he's pretty open-minded maybe I can talk to him but he's part of the tribe so I took him to a, a maps presentation and you were there, and the other doctor, I can't remember, shorter fellow with glasses or, or whatever that's doing the trials, talked, and we're talking on the way home. And I said, what do you think about that? And he goes, well, I don't know, man. It's, you know, it's not AA. And I'm like, no, you're right. <laughs> it's not AA. <laughs> exactly. And so we had this really intimate conversation about that, about neurobiology and the brain and neurotransmitters and trauma. And I said, well, you know, I took it, and I, I'm smart enough in a social setting to float a test balloon to see where it goes, become pretty savvy. So I said, you know, I smoked pot about 10 years ago. What do you think about that? All it did was put me to sleep. And he goes, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. Well, three weeks later, I was intervened on. Wow. You know, he'd went and spread it all over town, which happens, you know, and here you are in a group of people that are vulnerable and hurt. And in order to get better, you have to reveal your most intimate wounds and you do that. And some people pedal that shit around the street, you know, and it hurts even worse because this is the only place you can live to survive in some cases. And if that group turns against you, it's hard. So I started to see all that, and that was it. That was like, you know what? Mm. That feels like betrayal.
after this this betrayal about confessing that you smoke a little weed before bed and then getting intervened on, what was your process then of pulling away from the 12-step tribe you know, to, to where you are now? So that has been, I haven't completely pulled away. You know, I, I like meetings because they make me listen. You know, it's a place where I can go to sit down and I'm forced to listen, which is good for me because I'm talking all the time. My brain is moving all the time and it calms me down. I like to hear people talk about their spiritual experiences. I like to hear people talk about God. It's, it's kind of like church for me. But there's been this niggling feeling that I'm being disingenuous by sitting in there because I'm not, you know, toting the load the way it should be toted. But during this, this period, this is so significant. I'd moved to Colorado, explored this stuff, done a lot of research, looked at retreats for ayahuasca in Costa Rica and things like that, just not quite sure. I know I'm ready. I can feel it, that I'm willing. I don't know about ready. So I meet this guy on a bicycle ride. I ride with the, a group out of Boulder. I'll just leave it at that, that's in sober recovery. And so we hit it off, and he's a very hard-headed AA guy. And I thought, well, we'll be friends, but you know, he's not going to get to the intimate stuff. Well, a week later, I'm in a meeting at York Street Club, and uh, this woman shares an experience that sounds a little ethereal and a little bit on the edge. And I thought, maybe I can talk to her. That's an interesting way that she brought that up. And so I go to her and, and say, tell me a little bit more about that road trip. And we just hit it off. And she said, why don't you come to our house and have dinner? I want you to meet my husband. So the next week, I was there, and it was this guy I met on the bike ride. And we're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Well, within two hours, she and I were talking about ayahuasca. She'd been looking into it for years. She said, we've got a, a shaman coming in uh, two months that's going to do ceremonies here in Colorado, and I want you to do this. And I'm like, okay, mm. this is supposed to happen. This is not – these are the kind of occurrences. I've never been one of these guys that, you know – Everything is supposed to happen the way God wants it to happen or whatever. And this was more than serendipitous. Yeah. It was synergistic. Yeah. Were you entering into ayahuasca seeking something like that to heal specific wounds or trauma? Or was it more psychospiritual exploration? Or do you remember, did you have a goal? Like something that you were actually trying to fix or work on? So, you know... The way this was structured is, you know, of course you should be going into it with an intent of some sort. And mine was a bit vague. You know, I'd been, I have acknowledged the trauma and the devastation that it's had on my life and that that is why I have these holes in my, that I keep falling into. And so I, uh, I went into it with the intent of exploration just around that. Psycho-spiritual for sure, because I've never been a, a monotheistic God fellow, um, you know, there, there is no question in my mind that there's something very massive going on in the universe, and I'm a big part of that. So there's no lack of belief in greater powers, but it's not focused or directionalized. And I'd like a little bit more of a personal experience because as it's been said, you know, well, gosh, if, if I feel bad, I just get down and pray. And I've said a thousand times in meetings, much to the chagrin of my cohorts, that, uh, I've never felt the hand of a loving father warm my soul when I'm in my deepest moment of need. It doesn't happen. I get down on my knees and pray, and I stay crushed until I can get over it. I've never been rescued by a spirit from the depths when I'm, when I'm in the darkness. Mm. 
that is no longer true. I have been, you know, during the course of the divorce that I had, I, it was probably the darkest spot of my life. I prayed one night. I, I was, I was gone. I was at the end, like an ego death or something. And, uh, I was pr- just pray. I just gave up. I surrendered and something happened and I was comforted for that night. And that changed things for me a little bit. So as far as the entering into the ayahuasca, yeah, I was psycho-spiritual, but definitely to fix, if I could just fix this thing, because I deeply want intimate connection. And I don't seem to be able to, uh, haven't been able to have great success with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how did that process of preparing for ayahuasca and then the actual ceremony evolve? So with this... uh, shaman you know they ask you to uh, exercise a certain diet for a couple of weeks you have to be off all medications and i'm on uh, especially antidepressants because there's an interaction with ssris i believe with that and um i wasn't on any of those but i'm on, i've got rheumatoid arthritis so i'm on some pretty sick chemo stuff and i was able i told my rheumatologist here's what i'm getting ready to do and she was like all right yeah by all means go off of that shit man come back and tell me which yeah. was heartening, you know? Yeah. You know it's Colorado. Absolutely. <laughs> your, your rheumatologist says, oh, an ayahuasca session with a shaman? That's that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Go get it, tiger. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and then prayer and intention. And here's what was really beautiful is there was 13 of us. And many of these people in this group had in excess of 20, 25 years sober. They were all in AA, almost all of them, which gave me a great deal of confidence, which told me I'm moving in the right direction. I'm not wrong. I'm not an anomaly. I'm not rebellious. I'm just moving. You know, I'm looking for more. And so are they. And they repeated the same things to me that, you know, the vessel had just become too small, too constrictive, too dogmatic, perhaps. And we met uh, three times on Zoom. This was all during the pandemic or during the quarantine on Zoom and, and had, I don't know, they were guided sessions with the shaman ahead of time, just so we got to know each other and what we were getting into and what our intentions were, which was really, really helpful. And then, of course, the day of, you don't eat anything. And we're out in the woods in hammocks and uh, on mats and blankets and things like that. And it was quite frightening for me because I haven't had any foreign substance in my body for 31 years. There's been nothing on board. And I don't think about that much, but I've said my prayers and I go up to the shaman and he hands it to me and he's looking, and he knows all this, right? He's looking right at me and it's just a little cup. And I'm like... God damn, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm not in control. I don't know what this is gonna do. I don't know where I'm gonna head. Okay, and I sat down and I took it and just waited. And I'm just like, holy shit! And it's hyper vigilance to the nth degree. It's like, what was that? Did I feel that? Am I hallucinating? Is the tree moving? And that's not super beneficial because really what was happening is my body is not comfortable with whatever is starting to go on. It was uncomfortable. And, uh, and I was kind of fighting that process. The skill set you learn with this medicine is to work with it and let it do it, let it do its job. And I wasn't really quite there, but over the course of the next six hours, I got there 
while the medication was on board, I didn't have any overt hallucinations. And there were people around me that were really deep into some stuff and some having difficulties and some having beautiful experience and some both. Mine was more trance-like. Um, I settled into a very low level of relaxation and essentially what I saw, I didn't see with my eyes, but I saw with my heart, you know, these relationships would float by. I would see my entire family and how they interacted with each other, kind of like the matrix between them. And then the next one would come by and I wasn't affected emotionally by that. It was purely a third party observational kind of a thing where I was able to observe these interactions and these occurrences uh, without an emotional response. So it, it became clear. It wasn't fogged up with all of the perceptions that I have when I'm, I'm clean. Mm-hmm. Did it feel like a teaching? Like, Here's was... the thing. During the day while I was on the medicine, no. Was it enlightening for me to a degree? So I go home that night. And I take a shower. And I mean, it's a tremendous experience. It's very physically taxing. It was hard on my body, hard on my emotions. But I felt satisfied and relaxed and grateful. And I took a shower and I ate. And I sat down on my back deck to take my little thing and, and have a cigarette. As soon as I did that, something happened. I was, I don't know if you can call it a visitation or a vision it came from internally from every cell in my body, but I had conversation is too small of a word. I had an interaction with the DNA of the universe. It was that massive. And I was no longer under the influence of this medicine overtly, but it, it took a form it, and that's finite. And whatever it was I was talking with was infinite, but it said, I'm taking a form because you got to see that. You know, you're a guy, and and it talked to me in these very human terms. We talked about my family and my ancestors, and about Mitchie's death and where he is, and where I am in respect to that. About my wife's betrayal and the divorce. About where I belong in the universe, and it was very lighthearted, and it was the overall message is, dude, it's all okay. And you've been fine. You've always been fine. You always will be fine. And so the comfort that came from the knowledge that there's something out there that I'm a massive part of, that I'll never not be a part of, it was hard copied. It gave me a belief that, not that, like the Christian thing that God's looking at every hair on my head, but that that there is... This sounds so woo-woo, right? That there is a knowing, mm-hmm. and I'm all a part of that knowing. Mm-hmm. I d- in one of our post-sessions, you know, we met twice afterwards, this group, and one guy said, human language does not have the capacity to express what occurs in a situation like this. And that's the only place I can leave it. You know, it's some place that I can be led and be, but I can't really explain. Mm-hmm. It was... In comparison to the other substance, this was the 10,000-foot view, the universal view of myself in relation to my universe, to the universe. What it also gave me, I asked you to remind me about the quickening. Mm -hmm. And so when I I had these, and still continue to have these experiences that are, are 
short in duration, but very intense. And the, in searching for a way to explain it, the only thing I can call it is a quickening. And when I read what the definition of that's when a mother experiences life within herself. And it's just like, wow, there's a life within me. That's what I experience. It's a quickening. And uh, two days ago I had it. I was on my front porch and I was grilling chicken and the leaves rustled a little bit. I was in the universe all of a sudden for a second. It's like, oh, yes. And then it goes away. But it's been persistent, intermittent. It sounds beautiful. It is. It's moving. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's kind of the thing that I go to when I'm in the darkness. I say, mm-hmm. Remember that quickening thing. It's all still there. And I try to go out and recreate it, and I can't. But I, I do have faith now. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a lot of faith before. Yeah. Excuse me. Is it more a sensation of like aliveness or connection or like resonance or wonder? Like, how does it, it feel emotionally when you feel this quickening? Yes. <laughs> it is exactly... A, all, a, B, C, D, and E. Yeah, okay. all of those things. But I'll tell you, I think the most valuable of all of those things is the wonder. Because it reminds me of when I was five. And everything was full of wonder. I, every day was a day I woke up and say, I wonder what we're going to find out today. And then that got crushed by all those things that happened. Mm-hmm. And having a sense of childlike wonder about the unknown universe is a beautiful thing because it's not a bad place. There's no darkness out there for me. The darkness is all in here. And uh, so when that happens, it's just, yeah, it is wonder and it's harmony, it's union, it's connection. And it is primarily nature-bound, but it also involves humanity as well. Another thing that came up right immediately that has been actionable on a daily basis after the ayahuasca was the the level of empathy that I have for the world at large and individuals is almost debilitating at times. And I'll give you some experiences when we get further down the road that directly relate to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel so deeply. So just this one ayahuasca session has had after ripples, after shocks, um, changes that still resonate months later. Oh, yeah. So this is almost a year later. Mm-hmm. And so the question that I ask myself with all of these experiences, is there something actionable on a daily basis that I can use to either better my life or help me move through discomforts and things like that? And categorically, the answer is yes. It's not a miracle. You know, it didn't cure anything. But it has certainly given me a a set of tools that are actionable on a daily basis with practice. You know, I have to practice these things. They didn't do so well this week because it was was a hard week. But in a lot of other circumstances, and and I can describe those to a certain degree if we get to that point, what those tools, how those operate. Mm -hmm. Tell me about two psilocybin. I know you had an experience with that, again, with the goal of exploration and healing and discovery. 
Yeah, so every time I talk about this, I get asked frequently about this now, and I have to stop and take a breath because my chest swells. Mm. I mean, I get tears in my eyes because it was so profound. So the way I, I found, I found a, a therapist, if you will, that does psilocybin therapy through this group. Very well known, been doing it for decades, and I'm sure you will know her. We'll discuss that after after this. This woman, there was a lot of pre-work, like eight pages of stuff I just did. I've been through a lot of this shit in the last <laughs> year, man. I've been digging the dirt. <laughs> and, uh, so I went through all that pre-work, so she's had some background to work with. And, and God knows i got plenty of background to work with. And uh, she came over and... You know, we did a couple of sessions online, still Zoom during the pandemic, and she came over to my house. She lives in Longmont and drove over there, and we sat uh, in my home, and uh, she gave me a, a much larger than recreational dose of psilocybin. And once again, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. I'm, I'm, I'm releasing control, right? I've been in control for a long time, and... Uh, you know, physically, it was difficult again. It was very taxing physically on me. But overall, the psilocybin experience was much more personal to me, my emotions, my world. That's where it was. It was not a universal view of, of the great gods and things like that. It was tactile, somatic, um, physical, visual. You know, with this medication, I didn't have overt hallucinations either. You know, I'm kind of envious because I want that, but I, I didn't get any. Didn't you see the colors? Well, no, I did not. Damn it. And let me try again, which is just exactly what I did when I was shooting dope. You know, it's let me try again, try a little harder. Don't want to go there. Okay, so with, with psilocybin, I was able to give form. Not give it, it was there. To see the form, and this sounds so woo. I can only talk about this with certain people because there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, whatever. Um, my emotions had shapes. They had physical structure. And she told me at the outset, she said, this is going to be a somatic journey. It's going to take place inside your body. And we're going to stop at points and spend time in these places. And I could, the first visual I had it told me, it said, I'm your system. I'm the system. And I could see it. And the system was suffering. It was shaking and it was quivering and it was vibrating, just like I've been doing all week long. I could see it. And this is really in a nutshell, and it is imperfect and not nearly as deep as it felt. But she asked me to describe it, where it was located. And so that forced me to spend time with this discomfort and feel it out. She said, where, where does that come from? And I said, I don't know. Well, then let's talk about your brother. And in an instant, I was in, and here's this thing about traveling back in time to heal. You know, I've never believed any of that woo-woo stuff, but I can tell you, I was in that room and I felt those feelings and I told her exactly what I told you. I see knees. And I hurt, and I don't know what that feeling is, and I'm scared, I don't know what that feeling is. And she said one thing, she says, what does that child need? What does that child need? And he needs to know what the fuck is going on. What is going on? Will somebody just tell me what's going on? Why do I feel this way? What's happening? 
And she said, then that's the question you have to ask yourself every day. Is there something I need? You know, not necessarily, do I need to eat? Do I need to sleep? Do I need to, and I don't ask that. I just drive ahead, you know, just walk away from that shit. And that's taught me a more gentle way of approaching this stuff. Mm. So that was one aspect of it. other aspect of it is she said okay so you know we went through these trauma experiences and understanding that that child needs something and he's not getting it well what does he need well the answer is pretty obvious it's love and it's care and it's attention so she stopped me and she says are there people in your life that you know <clears throat> that love you unconditionally the operative word here is know and not feel, okay? I know. Mm -hmm. And she says, I want you to visualize those people. And I could. I could see them. And the, the, my eyes were closed for five hours. I didn't open them except a couple of times. And so I see them with my heart, you know. And she said, what would they say to that child? And I could verbalize things that would comfort that child. She says, can you access that? And I said, I can see it and I know it's there but I can't, felt, I can't feel it. I never have. I've never been able to say, look at all the goodness in my life to pull me out of a hole. And she said, that's the trauma that's cutting you off from there. And so that's where the work is. We need to get that channel open. And she said, that's what this medicine should do is reopen or rewire those neurobiological blockages that come from years of being bound up with that kind of tension and cortisol dump and all that shit. That's where we, we need to be. Now, these are things that I also had learned in AA to a degree, but they were very surface. This is physical. It was somatic. I could feel the relief. And in that period under the, with that medicine, I could bring those two together physically. Like, okay, they're coming together. And watch that gray vibrating piece of meat fill with blood and become oxygenated and calm down and stop shaking. thing that happened I could see my brothers you know my, my older brother is an alcoholic and he's I don't know if he's an alcoholic he drinks a lot not for me to say and he's terminal he's got a, a terminal disease but I love him a lot I could see what he needed I could see his emotions and I could see my little brother's emotions I could just Intuitively, I knew there's something I had to say to him, my older brother. And the next morning, I called him. It's 7 o'clock. I mean, I was up. And I mean, this was a pressing knee. And I said, there's something I got to tell you. And I told him. 
And it was real simple. It said, I just want you to know that your life hasn't gone by unnoticed, that I've watched you every day. You've led a remarkably robust life. You're ballsy. You've done things that nobody else would do. And I've lived a life of respect for you, regardless of all the weird shit that we've been through. And I just want you to know that that you've been seen and you've been heard. Mm -hmm. And you've been loved. (laughs) And he... He came apart at the seams. Mm. He lost his shit. And he said, I, that's something I've been needing to hear for 60 years. And I didn't know that I needed to hear that. Mm. So I go to my younger brother, you know, a week later. And I could tell that that was not, it wasn't the time. Mm. It just wasn't. You know, he's drunk a lot. And uh, it's been hard. And he's a biker, you know, one percenter-ish or wannabe. But I will say this, a few weeks, well, a few weeks ago, I caught him in a moment where he was sober. And the message wasn't the same. The message was that he and I are more alike than he even knows, that our paths are almost identical. They just look a little bit different. They've got different costumes. And he and I both suffer from the same inadequacies and the same anxieties. We just cover it up in different ways. So I just told him, I want you to know that I'm, I'm on your team. There's no separation between us. And I've never said anything like that before. I've, that came after I'd been at dinner with my dad. And we were talking smack about my brother because he's irresponsible. <laughs> I wasn't talking with my dad. I was talking with somebody else. I look at my dad. And he, he looks tired. And I said, you need to go home. And he goes, he goes, no. He goes, you're talking bad about your brother. Your brother is my son. And it hurts me to hear you talk about him like that and enjoy it so much. It crushed me. And that set me on a path of I need to fix this because I am guilty of that. And that's why I went to him and said what I said. Now is the time. We don't have any more time. We're going to fix this now. And I need to shut the fuck up and talk, stop talking smack about my brother. How would you say your capacity to feel love is now you talked about you could know it intellectually you could know you know in a frontal lobe way that you're loved but do you feel like you're any more able to feel it you know i don't know one of the things that i have experienced is the tools that i do have that i can describe are now to a relative degree Every external circumstance that comes my way triggers a fight or flight response in some, on some level. That's just how I operate. It, it triggers the system, and the system suffers. Now I'm able to sense these emotional inputs and assess them before I'm affected. To just intellectually, third, just like I told you in the ayahuasca, I can look at it without emotion say, well, this is going to come in, and this usually does this. And they kind of evaporate, and they haven't, I haven't been as deeply affected by little traumas throughout the course of the day. From my brother, my older brother, yes. I mean, the channel was opened there. I, that's a done deal for both of them. 
So most recently, I think I just shared with you, I, I just, I haven't, since the divorce, I haven't gone anywhere near relationships at all. Terrified, absolutely terrified. You know, I'm afraid I'm going to be strip-mined again. Mm. And uh, I met a woman that, that I've known for some time, you know, a little period of time, and uh, suddenly it was just one of those things where we just saw each other. And went, wow, you know, I really like you, and I'd like to get to know you better. You know, so we got together and went on a couple of dates and shared very intimate stuff. And all of a sudden, I'm in that hole. I mean, just like that. I'm in that hole of fear again. And so in that capacity, no. But that brings me to the thing, is there more work to do? Yeah, so on the surface stuff or the less intense stuff, there's progress. And here there's progress because... Now I know what this is. I know why it's there. I can't make it go away, but I'm able to handle it a little bit better now and not cause any damage while I'm going through it. Mm-hmm. I've been pretty resilient so far and get better all the time and uh, certainly hope to move forward. And, and I'm, you know, I don't want to sound willy nilly like, oh, you know, just dump any old chemical on board and we'll see if it gets the electrical circuitry working. I approach this stuff with great reverence you know mm-hmm. it's it's not to be toyed with by any stretch and i've had some people ask me well is it something i should do and i'm like i can't make that call it took me 30 years of hard work to get there and so if somebody you know for your listeners if somebody is thinking about this moving into this arena of healing uh, one of the I don't want to say requirements because I don't know what there are, but if you have a well-developed skill of self-assessment, you know, which you will develop in AA through the 12 steps, um, a physically strong composition and are emotionally ready by all means. But for somebody to go into it unguided and uh, unprepared on an emotional level, I don't know how good it would be. I don't think it would be dangerous, but it might not be super beneficial. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing that I could think would happen was somebody going into it irresponsibly and showing up horribly somewhere. And then the whole arena of healing over here gets branded as, you know, it's all hokey shit, you know. And so I want to be very careful with my talking about this, who I talk to about it, and the way I approach it. If you'd like to reach out to Chris or me, you can contact us through my website, craigheacockmd.com. We'd love to hear your critiques, feedback, story ideas. And if you'd like to support the podcast, the best thing you could do is pick a favorite episode, send it to a friend or family member, spread the word about Back from the Abyss.